One of the great desires for people today, probably for most of us, is to be safe, to feel safe. Because we do live in a world where there are many potential threats, very great and substantial dangers. So we want to find ways to be safer. So we ask, is it safe of things? We say to one another, be safe, perhaps when we depart. And if a person or a situation or an object provides greater safety, that can be very attractive, compelling to us. Can that make me more safe? And so some might ask, well, does Christianity promise that safety? If I desire safety, if I'm looking for safety in this life, is, is Christianity the answer? Is that what I should pursue? Is that where I'll finally feel safe? Is that why Jesus came most of all to make us safe? That's some of what we'll consider this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel chapter 22. Today we'll be in 1 Samuel 22, starting in verse 6. And you can find it in the Bibles near you on page 245. Page 245. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible. Just open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you. Uh, that way you can follow along as we make our way through that. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in chapter 22. The smaller numbers are, are the verse numbers. We'll start in verse 6 and we'll work our way through the end of this chapter. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, there's a stack of Bibles there. Following the service, we'd encourage you to go by there, just grab one of those Bibles and take it with you as our gift to you today. Now we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we've been calling In Search of a King. And if you're newer to Hope, we're in this series in this Old Testament book of 1 Samuel where we're watching God's people, the Israelites, that God had sustained and kept them. He has provided for them. But in time, the people said that they wanted a king and a king like the other nations around them. God had warned them of what kings like the other nations are like. In fact, how detrimental that would be to them. And yet they would, they would not be persuaded. So they, they required of God, God, would you give us a king? And so God gave to them a king who was anointed by the name of Saul. And Saul had been reigning over the nation, but he progressively moved further and further away from God. Instead of walking in line with God's word, he walked in self-centeredness. We see destructive envy and sinful anger growing up in Saul. God had then privately anointed the next king. Though Saul was still living, Saul was still reigning. The next king, David, was anointed David then became a hero for God's people as he delivered God's people from this great warrior named Goliath. But he continued to have military success so that more and more people thought highly of David. He was a, he was a champion to them, loved by all. Eventually, he was married to Saul's daughter, so he became Saul's son-in-law. He developed a deep covenant friendship with David's son, Jonathan. So this relationship grew. David grew in his uh, approval of others. But in time, Saul became envious of David because everyone loved David. People sang songs about the exploits of David, and so Saul became envious. And we've seen in recent weeks that that had led to, to Saul eventually now seeking to kill his own son-in-law, repeatedly so. Last week, finally, it's become clear that's not going to change, so David fled. 
And we saw him on the run last week. We found in a cave where, where some came to him who were, who were without anything else in the world who came to David. He had about 400 men with him. At the end of the text last week, a prophet came and told David to, to go. And so then they've moved to Judah and now in a forest. So we pick it up today, chapter 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? And that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. They killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Trust and follow the king who promises difficulty but provides security. Trust and follow the king who promises difficulty but provides 
security. We'll look at our passage this morning in just two different parts. So first we'll see the danger of aligning with the true king. And then second, the security of aligning with the true king. So the danger and the security of aligning with the true king. So first we see the danger of aligning with the true king in verses 6 through 19. We saw last week, David is on the run. He ended up in a cave Then he flees then to the forest. But then verse 6, the scene shifts from David to the king, to King Saul. And we see Saul seated at Gibeah, we're told, under the tamarisk tree on the heights. His servants around him. It's quite a contrast with David. David is hiding out. He's on the run. Saul is out in the open, secure at peace seated with authority and all his servants around him. So between these two anointed kings, one king seems to have all the authority, all the power, everything this world needs, and one, David, seems to have nothing. And yet even in this depiction, one note points to the insecurity and the instability of Saul. As we're told that he has his spear in his hand. Now, you know, if you think about it, that would be unnecessary. He's the king in his own land. His, his land seems to be at peace. He has his own servants, so his own soldiers around him. So why does he need a spear on hand all the time? Well, we've seen earlier in the passage that sadly, Saul freely uses this spear as he threw it at David multiple times, trying to hit and kill David, although fortunately he's a bad shot. He then eventually, last week, we even threw it at his own son, Jonathan. So Saul, in his insecurity, though he would seem to have all the power, all the authority, always has the spear ready for anyone who would cross him. We see then that Saul accuses his servants of conspiring with the one called the son of Jesse. This is referring to David. That they conspired by not telling him that Jonathan has made this covenant with David. So now he's accusing Jonathan of stirring up David against him. We hear anger, insecurity, self-pity in Saul's words. We also see a glimpse of what his reign as king has become. Notice that as he speaks in verse 7, he says, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Well, Benjamin is one of the tribes of Israel, but not the only one. He's the king of the entire nation, but who does he speak to here? Who is it that's around him serving him? It's evidently only those of the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's own family line. So the king has not functionally operated as a king for all people, but it's at least progressively narrowed down to just his own tribe around him. Perhaps as his clout has lessened and David's has grown, fewer and fewer people want to be around him. But here, his his focus is only on his own people. And notice what he says to the servants of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, will the son of Jesse, referring to David, will he give them fields and vineyards and make them commanders of others? So apparently this must have been one of the ways that Saul's reign sought to bring about loyalty. How did he secure the loyalty of his servants? By giving them land, giving them vineyards. He purchased their loyalty. They weren't loyal to him as a person. 
because he was a valiant king. They weren't loyal because of his character as a faithful king, but because of what he gave to them. But where did he even obtain these fields and vineyards that he gave? How did he obtain these soldiers, these servants, who he was giving the fields and vineyards to? If you've been with us throughout the series, it may call to mind back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When the Israelites said, we want a king, God had cautioned them through Samuel saying, if you get a king like the nations, here's what those kings do. Here's what chapter 8 verse 11 says. If you have a king like the nations, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Chapter 8 verse 14, if you have a king like the nations, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. But even though they were warned of this, they insisted that God give them a king like the nations. And now Saul is doing exactly what they've been warned of. He has taken some of their men and made them his servants, his soldiers. And now he buys their loyalty, not by his own fields, but the fields he's taken from others, the vineyards he's taken from others. This is the only way that Saul could reign. We also see in Saul that although he possessed all that he wanted materially, he was envious of David and marked by a profound self-pity. As we hear it in his words, as he talks about me and my. So he says to his servants, no one discloses to me when my son, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son stirred up my servants against me. We've seen already in previous chapters the power of envy in Saul. And it continues to spiral inward more and more as self-pity grows. And this spiral leads to this hatred that then leads to destructive actions. But of course, as we've already noted, envy and jealousy of others is not only a temptation for kings, but it's a temptation for every one of us here today to envy others in our lives, and especially to envy those who are in some ways a lot like us, but who have something that we so desire, sometimes that we think we deserve, that we think we've earned, and yet someone else has it. So Saul had it all except the love, the approval of the crowds, and David had that. And so envy rises up in our hearts. And so easily, though, we may not ever let others see it, it spirals inwardly in self-pity. Why not me? Why her instead of me? Why him instead of me? Spirals to anger towards others. It consumes us within. And sometimes leads us to take destructive actions. Now, probably not throwing a spear at anyone. Still, in subtle and not so subtle ways, undermining others out of our own envy. This friend, I wonder where in your heart today do you find envy? Is it in the coworker who got the promotion that you want? 
that you thought you deserved. This is the, the, the fellow student that always just seems a step ahead of you. Always seems to get the approval. Is your neighbor. Is it a high school classmate that in so many ways you've lost touch with and yet you see their life and their life just seems so much more advanced from where you thought you should be. And here they are with everything you desire. So many other areas where envy takes root in our hearts. We need to see the danger of envy. It's so destructive for us and for others. We're going to wisely repent of and flee from envy. It seems that Saul is expecting some of his servants to to speak up and, and tell him about what David has been doing, but none of the servants say anything. As he scolds them, accuses them, they're just there in silence. But someone else does speak up. Look at verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. Now, who is Doeg? He's a non-Israelite. He's an outsider, so he's what we would call a Gentile. And if you're with us last week, we saw that David went to Nob, and there he's where he met Ahimelech. And there was this one little note that we saw that seemed almost not essential to the story, this mention of Doeg the Edomite being there as well. And just this brilliant kind of foreshadowing that the narrator includes in preparation for this. Doeg is this outsider who saw David at Ahimelech, but evidently Saul has entrusted authority to Doeg because we saw last week, chapter 21, verse 7, it said of Doeg, he was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So he's been given a significant position under the king, even though he's a non-Israelite. No one else will speak up. Doeg will. And Doeg was apparently glad to speak up and tell him that he had seen David in Nob, that they had seen David come to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech the priest had given him some provisions. We saw last week he had given him some bread. Ahimelech had given to him a weapon, not just any weapon, but the sword of Goliath. And he says that Ahimelech also had uh, prayed. He had interceded with the Lord for David. In response to this news, Saul sent for Ahimelech, and in fact, all the priests of Nob, and they were brought to Saul. Saul questions Ahimelech, asking him why he had conspired against Saul with David and giving David bread and a sword and praying for him. Ahimelech answers, giving a, a really a clear and compelling answer. Well, he says, one, who among, he's talking to the king, well, who among your servants is as faithful as David? It seems like David's your best servant. And also David is your son-in-law. He's married to your daughter. He's the captain over your bodyguard. He's honored in your house. Is today the first time that I've prayed for David, inquired of God for him? And the answer would be no. So Ahimelech explains his case. He's like, why wouldn't I have helped David? David seems like an insider of insiders. And so if he shows up for help, out of respect for you as the king, I'm helping David. He asks in verse 15, look at verse 15. He says, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this much or little. It's as if Ahimelech is saying, look, I don't actually know why I'm here. 
I don't know what's going on here. I don't know anything of this. I just know that David came to me. I and everyone else respect David. We know he's one of your trusted men, so why wouldn't I have helped him? And to an unbiased observer, to an unbiased court, certainly any court would have found in favor of Ahimelech. His case makes sense, it's clear, it's factual, while Saul is irrational. But this was not an unbiased court. In his envy and anger, Saul was unwilling to truly consider the facts that Ahimelech shares. So Saul responds, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. To carry this out, Saul then turns to his servants and told them, kill Ahimelech and all the priests. But look at verse 17. It says, but the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The servants understand the king has authority, but they're like, we're not doing that. These are God's priests. They're unarmed. We will not kill them. But Doeg, who would speak up, is now instructed by Saul to kill them. And he evidently was glad to do so. So he turned and killed 85 priests that day. But not only that, he goes beyond what we understand Saul's command to be. He goes to Nob and wipes out all who were there. The priest's family as well. Saul, the king of Israel, instead of protecting Israel from outsiders... Instead of protecting Israel from Gentiles, is instead commanding an outsider, a Gentile, to kill Israelites. What kind of king is this who kills his own people? We saw earlier in 1 Samuel 15 that God had commanded Saul to destroy a people, the Amalekites, who had been so opposed to God for generations. We saw that Saul was unwilling to completely do that. He did a partial job, but but he wouldn't follow through. But here, because he's been offended, because his reputation is at stake, he says, wipe them all out. Here, though, even in Saul's horrible acts, we see judgment come, just as God said it would, upon the line of the priest Eli. At the beginning of the book, Eli had been this priest who played a key role, but we saw in him his sons were committing just egregious sin. And Eli would never confront them, would never do anything about it. So then the Lord pronounces judgment on Eli, telling him that Eli, his entire family, judgment would come on them because of this rebellion, and only one of them would survive. That's exactly what happens in the passage. So we see the depth that Saul has descended into in this horrible, sinful spiral. That he's now against his own people. But these were not ultimately his people, but God's people. So Saul is against God's people and therefore is actually against God himself as well. So Saul, the king of God's people, has become anti-God. He's opposed to God. He's he's opposed to the Lord's anointed one, David. We've used this term anointed one, which literally means Messiah, which we also translate Christ. 
So Saul has functionally become an anti-Christ. If people know anything of Antichrist, we typically think of the Antichrist that's at the very end. And there is one who is to come, but we actually see in 1 John this. Listen to 1 John 2.18. John writes, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So the Apostle John is saying that across the generations, there have been many who are anti the Christ, opposed to the Christ. In deep and substantial ways. There are individuals, there are people, there are purposes that are antichrists. And sadly, that's what Saul himself has become. One of the antichrists. And since before Saul and all the way up until today, there are still antichrists in the world. Kingdoms pushing back against Jesus. Rejecting his reign. Rejecting who he is. And so because of this, we'll have to be discerning throughout our entire lives so we can discern and differentiate those who are opposed to the ways of Jesus. So we've been seeing in 1 Samuel these two rival kings, two rival kingdoms, that of Saul and that of David. Saul's can offer money, land, power, position, a claim in this world, David's at this point can offer nothing except run for your life, hide in caves and in the forest. All it offers is the character so far displayed by its king. And today, as always, there are competing kingdoms still in the world. Many of the kingdoms of this world offer to you authority, Power, position, possessions, and the affirmation, the approval of others. Well, the other kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, so often in this life offers loss, costliness. And yet it is this one kingdom that offers true grace, love, life now and life eternal. The king of this competing kingdom, Jesus, appeared to be a failed king, the weakest of kings. Jesus didn't fight as people came opposing him. In fact, he intentionally went to Jerusalem knowing what was going to happen. He told his disciples what they're going to do to him. He walked to the cross and there on a Roman cross endured a horrific death. Incredible suffering, shame heaped upon him. He chose to do that out of his great love for sinners like us. He hung on a cross seemingly the Savior who couldn't save himself, is what the mockers said. But he died and was buried, raised triumphant from the grave, so that through that shameful death and that resurrection, he would secure salvation, a free gift held out to any and all who receive it by faith. Friends, that's the good news of Christianity. Ahimelech, we see in the text, was not a sinless priest, but in this matter, he was innocent. An innocent priest put to death by this one who was an antichrist. But friends, when Jesus Christ came, he was thoroughly innocent. The sinless son of God. He, the perfect final high priest, who came to die as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. 
And friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give part of your Sunday to be with us. We would love for you to know, most of all, this gracious king. We do admit he's different from every other king. His kingdom is different from every other kingdom. It looks weak. It looks foolish compared to the kingdoms of the world. And yet it's in this kingdom, friend, their true grace, love, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, adoption into God's own family, all of that is a part of this gracious king's reign. We'd love to tell you more. So if you came with a friend or family member and they're a Christian, I know they would love to tell you more. You could also note on the Connect card if you'd like to know more, or I'll be at the door on the way out. I'd be very happy to talk with you more about who Jesus is. For we who are Christians, we continue to live in this world as these competing kingdoms can often be very enticing. It seems like a wise thing sometimes to embrace their ways instead of the ways of King Jesus. So I wonder where you're currently facing the temptation to embrace the values of another kingdom. Life in the kingdom of Jesus perhaps has grown disappointing to you. It hasn't played out the way you thought. It hasn't provided what you'd hoped for. And now these other kingdoms look like they may truly be worth trusting in. So we see the danger of aligning with the true king. Then second, we see the security of aligning with the true king. In verses 20 to 23. In verse 19, it's a picture of utter desolation. Everyone is wiped out. There's a glimmer of hope in verse 20. Look down at verse 20. It says, but one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. So all the priests were killed except for this one. Somehow, Abiathar escapes. He flees, and as he thinks about where to flee, he chooses, for some reason, to flee to David. So he goes to David, he finds David, and he tells him that Saul has killed all the priests of the Lord. Look at David's response, verse 22. David says, I knew on that day, remembering when he was at Nob, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. So David's like, I remember. I saw Doeg there, and it crossed my mind then that eventually he will do this. And we see the character of David that although it's certainly not his fault, he bears the weight of it. He says, it's because of me that your entire family has been killed. So David extends an invitation to Abiathar. Look at verse 23. He says to Abiathar, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. So first he says, stay with me. He invites Abiathar to join him and the others with him. And David tells Abiathar, do not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid today. You don't have to be afraid anymore but why? What's the assurance? Well, David actually gives what I think is some interesting, curious reasoning. Look at what he says. Do not be afraid for or because he who seeks my life seeks your life. That's not exactly what we'd expect David to say. 
He doesn't say, stay with me, don't be afraid, there's no more danger for you. It's not what he says. But instead, it's the one who's seeking my life is seeking your life as well. It doesn't sound so assuring. It doesn't seem like that would end fear. But it's don't be afraid, not because there isn't any danger, but because the one you're with now, the anointed one, the king, he will keep you secure. So David now has the only priest, Abiathar, with him. We saw last week that the prophet Gad is now with him, and any of God's people, the king, had both prophet and priest. And so now David's kingdom is coming together. And we see in the text that Abiathar was in danger, not because of anything he did, but simply because of his association with the anointed one, David. So he would face the question, is it better to try to find safety on his own or really trust David and believe that he'll be faithful to provide security for him even though there's great danger? The fact is it will become increasingly dangerous and costly to be associated with David as the story moves forward. And friends, the same is true with the greater David, Jesus Christ, the true Savior and King. It has always been costly and sometimes very dangerous to be associated with Jesus Christ. Jesus cautioned his very first disciples. And through the scriptures, he's cautioned us and all Christians in all times of the very real cost of following him. Hear Jesus' own words in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus told his disciples that. That was their experience. It's the experience of the early church. Experience of Christians across history and around the world. Friends, those words are for us today as well. But Jesus also says this in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus says, people will at times utter all kinds of evil against you. They will falsely accuse you on the account of Jesus. He says, sternly rejoice and be glad. For there is a great reward for you in heaven. So it's true for Jesus' first disciples. It's true across every generation. It's true today. Many people oppose Jesus Christ and his message. And friend, if you follow Jesus in this life, they will, some will oppose you as well. Like Ahimelech, you can live a godly, honest life and face persecution, danger, even death, simply for being identified with God's anointed. That's what we see in Ahimelech. And so in kindness, Jesus cautions us. He prepares us. He seeks to equip us for this. So therefore, friend, when opposition comes because you follow Jesus, when, when persecution comes, when, when false things about you are said, 
We shouldn't be stunned. We shouldn't be crushed. We don't have to despair. Jesus knows. He told us it would happen. And Jesus says to us something even better than David's words. David said, stay with me and I'll keep you safe. He said, Jesus says to us, not stay with me, but I will stay with you. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 28, as he sends us to the ends of the earth, he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's better than stay with David is he's committed to stay with us. And how does he stay with us? The very spirit of God, the Holy Spirit dwells inside every Christian. So Christ reigns today and his spirit dwells in you. So therefore, friend, no matter where you go, no matter what you face, no matter how difficult or dark the valley, Jesus is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Jesus assures us, John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus says, trust me, have confidence, take heart in me. But friends, we do need to be clear. Jesus doesn't promise us safety in this life, but he promises us something greater, which is security with him in the life to come. He gives us a life worth living today and the promise of life eternal. To live is to live for Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, but to die is gain, to be with him forever. So we want to make sure that we understand that Jesus doesn't promise us physical safety in this life. Almost all his disciples died for him in that first generation. The book of Acts, we see people dying for Christ around the world. So many Christians have died for Christ. We might watch and read of martyrs, as I have. And if you've ever read the stories of martyrs and their boldness and their courage in the face of death is truly stunning. How do they stand with courage in the face of the loss of their lives? And when I read them, I think to myself, I could never do that. If I was charged either deny your faith or die, I fear I wouldn't have the courage. And the fact is, today, I don't have the courage. None of us do. But friends, here's the good news. Because Christ is with us by the Spirit, always with us. Friend, you can be assured, if you ever face that in this life, you would have the courage you would need to stand up in the moment. You don't have it today. You don't need the courage today. But the Spirit is with you as he was with them. Friend, he would embolden you to not deny the faith to speak courageous words that you probably couldn't imagine coming out of your mouth because the Spirit is with you and will be with you if you face that moment in this life. Because our physical safety has a place, and it's not bad, but it must never be ultimate for the Christian. For there's something greater than physical safety, and that's being secure in Christ, even if that means living without safety. So there isn't an assurance of safety, but there's a mission we're brought into that's worth living for and even dying for. And if we die, we gain Christ. So we're not to fear death. And therefore, we can take risks for the sake of the gospel because we're secure in Christ. 
So our driving question as Christians must not be, is it safe? So often it's what American Christians we think. I can do this or that if it's safe. Can you promise that it's safe? It's just foreign to the New Testament. In order for the gospel, especially to go to people who've never heard, so many of those people are in places that it is not safe. So someone will have to take a risk that they might hear. So one of our members, Cora, lives in a place where there's danger every day for the sake of Christ. And tonight at our first Sunday gathering, we'll pray for a couple from our church who are going out into another place where there's regular danger for the sake of Christ. The fact is, that's what it takes for the gospel to go forward. But here in the U.S. now, we don't face physical danger. And so it's tempting to think that if there's not physical danger, there's no difficulty. Or on the other hand, for some Christians to find difficulty in every part of life every day. Some Christians in America imagine everyone all the time is persecuting us. But the Christian life actually today in America is somewhere in between. Yeah, it's unlikely someone's going to kill us for the name of Christ in the U.S. today. But friends, make no mistake, there are those who will oppose you in greater Boston for following Jesus. Many of you know this far better than I do when it comes to your workplace or on your campus. And so the temptation to pull back from following Jesus is very real and can be strong because it's costly to follow Jesus. So we fear the loss of reputation, the loss of respect. If they find out that I'm truly following Jesus, the loss of some relationships, perhaps friendships. They might face the loss of a job, the loss of opportunities on campus. We may face mocking for following Jesus. Friends, that's real and present. So I wonder today, where are you currently tempted to pull back from Jesus? Choosing safety, maybe just safety of reputation, safety of your job, but it's calling you to pull back from the kingdom of Jesus. Have we elevated safety beyond being secure in Christ? It's one of many reasons we need the local church because we need others who are also facing the temptation to pull back when we're trying to stay with Jesus. So we have others who will help us, who will hold us up, who will bear these burdens and pray for us. And stay with the King. He will strengthen you. He will empower you for whatever you face. Our faithful King promises difficulty, but even more importantly, He provides security. So let's trust him and follow him by his grace as he strengthens us today and tomorrow and every day.